when I got recommended Scheme, it actually wasn't my first experience with it because uh, when I was perusing the family library, I used to read a 1.5 Lisp manual. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor, and today we have three panelists, as per usual, and a guest, which I am super excited to talk to. Uh, first, we'll go around with brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Steven, then go to Rich. Uh, then we're going to have three short announcements, and then we'll hop into our interview with our guest today. I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast, and I'm also working on the J Wiki right now, and we're making some progress. Um, hopefully by the end of February, we'll have a working uh, uh, online way to play around with J. Sort of like Try APL, but it'll be the J version. So that's what we're aiming for by the end of February. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APLers from way back. And these days, I'm KX Librarian. I'm Rich Park. I'm an APL programmer and evangelist working for Dialog Limited. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I am not uh, APL or J or K or Q or BQN developer. Uh, I code in C++ day-to-day -day professionally, but I love the array paradigm and all the languages associated with it. But yeah, that's all I'll say for now. Um, we've got three short announcements. I think we'll go to Rich first, uh, then Steven, and then Bob, and then we will introduce our guest. First thing then is voting uh, has started for an APL logo that's vendor agnostic so there's a little bit of history around what i said there apl historically has been developed by lots of separate entities who will have used their own logos to promote it there hasn't been a cohesive single logo for apl the language uh, really before so uh, some members of the community have decided to lead an effort to rectify that and uh, sort of just try to decide on a vendor agnostic apl logo um, and currently there is a vote on if you'd like to have your say um, in deciding a short list for five possible candidate concepts. For a little more context, you can watch uh, Connor's video, Code Report, APL logo video. Um, he describes things a bit, a bit more there. Or to actually go and find out how to vote, you can go to apl.wiki forward slash APL underscore logo but there'll be links uh, in the show notes for all of those things dan baker the kx evangelist is currently canvassing interest for a vector dojo this will be a regular practice area for the q programming language and the model is not a webinar it's not a classroom but a martial arts dojo where students of all levels can practice with each other and participate and share knowledge if that interests you, if you'd like to learn more about it or just um, or got some ideas about what you'd like to learn from it, register at community.kx.com, uh, find Dan's announcement and um, tell him what your interest is. And I've got an admission. When, when I work with people, I often work with them on a first-name basis. So the two guys that I've been working with on the wiki are um, Will and John. And of course, their last names, I didn't bother to find out how to pronounce. In the last episode, I massacred their last names. It's Will Gahate and John Hoff. I've checked with them. This is accurate. And they're also working with Joe Bogner, who I also have checked with. So now I have the pronunciations right. And apologies to these gentlemen. Awesome. All right. We got last name pronunciations and a couple of exciting announcements. Yeah, the logo 
uh, definitely go vote. Um, if you're interested, that is. Uh, I am super excited. Anyone that's watched or follows my YouTube channel knows that I'm a huge uh, programming language logo fan. And uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be nice to no longer have an orange, you know, 3D cube box, which I sort of stole from uh, Dialogues, uh, the company's uh, website that I've been in sort of place of not having a logo using that. And um, yeah, the Vector Dojo also sounds uh, super cool. So I will have to check that out uh, at a later date. But without further ado, today's guest, you may have heard his name probably a plethora of times on this uh, podcast so far, if you've been listening to past episodes, is Aaron Shu. Uh, currently works at Dialogue Limited, so a coworker of Rich, uh, one of our three panelists today, um, and also you know works with, I think we've had on now both Morton and Gita, which are the uh, CEO and CTO of Dialogue Limited. Um, so for those that you don't know, if this happens to be the first episode of a Raycast that you're listening to, Dialogue Limited is the company that uh, puts out Dialogue APL, which is the most popular version of APL these days. Um, and before working there, Aaron was very well known and is still well known for uh, his work on CoDefunds, which is a GPU hosted compiler uh, that compiles APL down to run on the GPU. Um, so I believe you spent most of your time at Indiana University getting your PhD working on that, and then I think still continue to work on that um, at uh, Dialog APL as well. And uh, I will. The only other thing I'll say about Aaron, uh, which hopefully we'll get uh, to hear a little bit about, is before becoming a huge APL fan, um, sp Aaron spent a lot of time uh, as a fan of another language, Scheme, which um, I think is super interesting because. Um, uh, there's an individual in the C++ community that's super well-known, Stepanov, that had a similar path, spent a decade in love with Scheme and then sort of found his way to C++. And just I find it interesting when uh, people that are huge fans of certain languages, before that language, there was a, a language that was entirely different. Scheme is, well, actually, we'll get, we'll get Aaron's thoughts on how different Scheme and APL are. But uh, with all that said, uh, we'll throw it over to you, Aaron. Feel free to you know, go back to however far back you want to and give us a brief history of yourself, and we'll go from there. Sure, sure, yeah, and uh, you know, as excited as you may be, I think uh, I'm also pretty excited to be here because uh, I really like this Arraycast and I like what's being done here. So it's pretty exciting for me too. Um, the, I guess, I'll try to keep it brief, um, but uh, I have, I, I have been programming since I was basically in middle school. So like, I have to go and like chart chart my experiences back there. So I began basically doing uh, learning programming in, in uh, middle or early high school and absolutely fell in love with it. And just like, that was my thing then. I just kept, kept working on that. And I used to do it on QBasic with the, I, I don't know if it was like a 486 or one of these old machines. And that really formed a lot of my, the, the pain that I went through. And the fun that I had at that time really formed must, a lot of my early filters about how I judge a language. And uh, from there, I sort of, the struggles that I encountered working with QBasic <sighs> led me into really appreciating what Scheme was able to offer. So when I, you know, I, when I was struggling around with C and C++, uh, you know, as a teen, learning, trying to figure out how these things work, playing around with Blender, uh, doing like 3D stuff. Then I discovered the scheme stuff uh, on the recommendation of a programming mentor. And it like just blew the doors wide open in, in a way that I had never seen before. And the, 
the degree of freedom and liberation that I felt in doing that was something that I could still remember to this day, sitting in the room, working on this going, oh my goodness, this is just, what have I discovered here? You know, this, this whole world just fell before me and the walls crumbled and all this other kind of stuff. And then I got pretty good at that scheme. And then uh, basically APL was my, I don't know if you like in the martial arts stories, uh, uh, you know, the histories, the mythologies of martial arts, since we're going with the dojo theme here. Uh, and I, I also like the martial arts, so I, I have to bring that in. The, uh, and there's a point at which like this experienced martial artist encounters somebody who's just, in, who's got something else. And, and then you, they, they battle it out and they realize, wait a second, like my stuff isn't quite good enough here. Like there's, I can't just keep going on the path that I'm going and, and defeat or, or learn or master this, this other martial arts master. And that I was kind of my encounter with APL as I played with APL and went, Oh my goodness, what's going on here. And, and then I, I started, you know, I, I, that started my trek down APL and uh, I guess that that started in 2010 ish. So it was actually probably separated by a few decades for each one, a decade in scheme, a decade now, I guess, in APL. And so I guess maybe the the obvious question, which uh, we actually spent our first episode, I think, talking about and we try to do a good job asking all of our first time guests on is is what is it that, you know, drew you to. So you, you said you sort of there was a war at some point or some battle between scheme and APL and you were holding the the blade of scheme and someone else had the bow and arrow of APL or I don't know, whatever weapon represents APL. And it was probably it was probably more accurate to say I had just uncovered this dusty old tome. Okay, so there was no battle. You just you were. Yeah, it, it, it was more that I, I the battle was imagined in my head uh, after uncovering these tomes, uh, because it was a little bit like uncovering an archaic like like the APL of 2010 is not the APL that we have today. This is very um, true, very true. And the ecosystem is not the same and things like that. So I, it really was more of a uncovering the ring of power or something like this, you know, going into the libraries and um, trying to peek into things. Uh, it, it was a lot more like that. So what was it about, um, and maybe if you want to contrast sort of QBasic versus Scheme, because obviously, you know, you fell in love with Scheme. So, you know, what was it about Scheme that spoke to you? And then what was it about APL that really made you fall in love with with that language? And then, you know, switch from one love to another love, basically. Yeah. So when I learned uh, computer science as a kid, I basically started with sorting algorithms. And so what we did is we went through each of the sorting algorithms and we had to design flow charts to implement those um, sorting algorithms and then implement the flow charts inside of QBasic. Now, as a young kid, I had no concept of a lot of the ideas uh, that would have helped me uh, do that in QBasic, right? And so when I got to the Radix sort and I tried to use um, a type of recursion inside of QBasic, well, I hit this tiny, tiny stack limit on the system because I didn't understand how QBasic's different uh, subroutine calling mechanisms work and all that. And so I just, I hit, I hit a wall. I, I couldn't make any progress on doing a lot of these uh, algorithms that I wanted to do or using a lot of these programming techniques. And when I got recommended Scheme, it actually wasn't my first experience with it because uh, when I was perusing the family library, I w used to read a 1.5 Lisp manual um, 
I had no idea what it was saying, but I just looked at it and was reading it because I loved what I was reading. And I, I, I didn't really know what I was reading. I was just reading it. And so there, uh, visually, I had already been sort of attuned, I guess, to what I was seeing. But, you know, I can remember pulling out that little slim white Lisp 1.5 manual, or it looked white to me. It was probably more like an aged cream at that point. Uh, but the uh, when, I, when I downloaded MIT Scheme and started playing around with it, I eventually switched over to Shea Scheme. But I remember going, all right. Here's the test. Can I get this Radix sort of thing working in a way that I like feel good about the code? And if, at first, it was again a, a brick wall. I had no idea what I was doing, but I I had gotten onto some um, IRC channels at that point, and uh, I remember um, Taylor Campbell actually was very helpful uh, during this time, and I played around with it, and then it clicked like the data flow in a functional style through. The procedures flowing through the system and that forming your code and then it I, I wrote it and i looked at it and was like oh my goodness i don't have to worry about all sorts of stuff like it it, it was the the system removed the limitations for me i i i had i was no longer i all i had to do i felt like all i had to do was think about my problem and then express it in this particularly elegant universal way and that held on for a really long time because um, I think it was Aziz Gulum who told me uh, this first that that uh, scheme was like the the language of least restriction, and and I still think that kind of holds true today. Is that you can there are very few languages that let you do as many cool things from a computer science standpoint as you can get away with in scheme, right? You can go really low level, but you can also go really high level in Scheme and accomplish just about anything from a semantic standpoint, right? And you can build macros on top of macros to build whatever language you want. And that flexibility uh, was extremely powerful. And so I, I used it to build like a hygienic um, literate programming system. The Shea Scheme modules uh, were really cool. The, and of course, at this time, I was in one of the great seats of power of Scheme, right, at Indiana University with some of the, at this time, some of the, what I consider some of the greatest minds and scheme uh, there. So of course I had a lot of advantage in terms of what I could do there um, and what I had access to in terms of experience to play around with the scheme language. But at the time I was also really interested in exploring parallel systems. And the parallel systems uh, we had talked about all sorts of parallelism in the scheme community and Kent Didvig, who I consider uh, one of my early mentors, he, he had written a dissertation on trying to automate parallelism inside of scheme and the difficulties around that. And other people at IU at this time were really working on work stealing schedulers for task threading. And I had read this book, I think I've still got it right over there on um, concurrent programming. It's one of the classic formal texts on concurrent programming and using a um, axiomatic semantics to reason about concurrency. And that, that book highlights the difficulty of the formal logic around actually talking about task parallelism and these other kinds of parallelism. And at that time, alternatives were getting a little steam that people were exploring like these data flow models. And all around this point, I, I had started needing to explore things outside of Scheme, and I was playing around with them, but Scheme was still my base. And then I really, after 
X number of years in the language, I started saying, well, what, what else can I learn? What am I going to add here that's going to be a little value add? And we had always scared uh, our introductory students. It's some of our, um, uh, what do you call labs? Some of our early CS labs with a line of APL, the game of life, saying, don't be afraid of scheme. We could be having you program this. <laughs> and of course, you know, it actually kind of worked because uh, they saw this and like, wait, you could really do that to us. And um, so the so I had known about APL, but only from that, oh, it's the crazy symbol language. And uh, then I started saying, oh, well, I guess it's, I really don't know what this language is. I don't have an idea of it. I don't really have, I ha don't have a sense of it. I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of, uh, you know, basically judgments that are made without enough evidence. And so I started going in and saying, well, what is APL actually? And I started reading about it and then I started playing with it and I downloaded APLX and I started trying to solve some problems with it. And unlike with Scheme where there was this wall that I had to kind of play with, there was a bit of a wall with APL, but not so much because I was a lot more experienced at this point. And when I started playing with it, it was like, again, these walls falling away. There's, there was a certain sort of... Um, I guess it's the, I'm trying, there's not really a, a, an easy universal analogy to it, but, but it was liberating in, in some of the same sense, except it was totally different than the sense I got when I was playing with Scheme, right? When I was working with Scheme, I was building something. And when I was using APL, I was writing a description of a solution. Um, I, it was a very different experience. One was like architecture and another was like fiction writing or something like this. It, it, there, was a, there was a total paradigm shift in terms of how I approached problems. And, I tr and of course, with every other paradigm that I had received, I could just re-implement it in Scheme and get all the same value. So I thought, okay, great. I'm going to take all of this and bring it into Scheme. And it didn't work. Like, like I, I tried, and every single time from various angles that I tried to implement APL in Scheme, it it, it lost its magic. It was no longer the APL that was giving me the experience that I wanted. And it wasn't any better than what my scheme solutions were. Adding the APL for me into scheme didn't net me the kinds of benefits that I expected having already experienced APL in the native form. And I was really confused by that because that had never happened to me before. That's what, sort of the unpacking of the tome, right? Is I went in there like, wait, what's going on here? And, and like, in some sense, the martial arts were just a little incompatible. Uh, and I didn't understand why they were. I didn't understand why APL was the way it was. And then it, it took me a long time to unpack that. Uh, and eventually I discovered that it was, it was because of syntax. It was because scheme is so driven by semantics and a freedom around semantics. And APL in the large way constrains those semantics, but by doing so gives you massive freedom in terms of the expressive power at a syntactic level and, and, uh, in a different dimension. And I couldn't get that by trying to mimic the semantics of APL inside of Scheme. The only way I could get it is if I basically re-implemented the syntactic APL in Scheme, and I would have had just another APL interpreter at that point. And that's when when things really like just started taking off for me. All right. I have, there's so much I could ask and say. Uh, 
Yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a, a rant. Actually, well, I'll pause because I'm pretty sure our other panelists have a couple questions. I know I think I've seen a couple people jotting notes, so I'll throw it to Steven and then uh, we'll, we'll circle back. But yeah, this is this is awesome. I can't, I can't resist this one. I hadn't realized um, how deeply you were into scheme in your background. So Whitney's often described K as a blend of Lisp and APL. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering what was your experience in encountering K and Q? I immediately saw how uh, Whitney leveraged his background in Lisp. Um, I think anybody who's done a lot of Lisp will see huge amounts of underlying similarities in how Whitney adjusted the semantics of APL to have more of a Lisp flavor while like sort of keeping the so it was almost like Whitney took the opposite direction. I was trying to take APL and bring it to Scheme. And I think Whitney had a lot more success precisely because he, in essence, took the semantics of Scheme in some level or took some of the aspects of the semantics of Scheme and merged them over to the APL side instead of going the other direction. And I think um, his uh, net worth would demonstrate that he was significantly more successful at that than I was at doing going the other direction. And uh, I think, I think the, the, the way in which he chose to simplify it, I think it was, it was, was really clever. It was really clever. Now, whether I agree, like personally agree with that direction moving forward, that's a different question. But in terms of the connection, the Lisp K connection, I think there's, it's, it's pretty straight. Uh, it, I, it's pretty straightforward if you know both languages or, or are familiar with both domains. There's, there's a lot of overlap there. And just just for the listener that, once again, this could be the first episode, uh, Whitney is refers to Arthur Whitney, who's the creator of all the K dialects, uh, which K4 eventually became Q and is now working on Shakti. And uh, you could say that he was a protege of, of Ken Iverson, the creator of APL. Um, and, and he was also a midwife for, uh, for Jay, because he was the one who wrote the original, um, I think, the original um, macro. That, that Roger then worked from and, and extended into J. So. Yeah. What is that wiki called? It's called the J Inca... Incunabulum. Incunabulum. Yeah. I have no idea what that word is, but we will link it. And it's it's actually... Because I had spent some time on the J source. When I first looked at it, I was like, oh my goodness, that's, that's crazy. Um, but then after having spent some time on the J source, it's actually not as impenetrable as you would think. Like it looks just as like at a glance, it's just like a single page of text and everything's formatted oddly. But I think you can even, you can see like, you know, J iota or something. And if you're familiar with what iota does, like it's, it's just a loop that's, it's not as impenetrable. It's just a bunch of macros. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth a more than just a glance if you're curious for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I will, I will try and find somewhere too. There's a document online. I can't remember if it lived on K park uh, which was a website sort of dedicated to K at one point, but it actually had, it was like notes from Arthur Whitney of like APL or K versus Lisp. And sort of, it was just like a short list of notes that, you know, he was saying, you know, in APL we have this and Lisp we have this or, or back and forth or K. And it, it was a, a short document, but um, yeah. definitely yeah. interesting read. And I, and I guess it makes sense uh, to qualify this as well as when I was doing my PhD, my minor was in HCI. Um, with a focus on education. So a lot of my study class work that was not um, heavy CS theory was all in UX design theory and user interactions and how you teach people things and 
you know, a lot of the psychology around that tech interaction. And so a lot of my perspective is deeply colored by the concept of programming language as a human computer interface, if you will. Yeah. Maybe we should talk a little bit more because I think you have some super interesting thoughts on that. Like, like how you said it's, it took you a while to grok what it is about APL. And a part of that is, is the, it's the syntax, it's the notation. And I've also spent like a ton of time trying to figure out does the, does the Q model where they wordified things, even if they're short words, um, is that just as expressive as having, you know, single Unicode symbols or even the, the, the two character, um, ASCII digraphs and J and yeah, I'm, there's always something about the single Unicode symbols that like, it's the closest thing or analogy that I've come up with is like, imagine trying to turn, uh, an algebraic expression of, you know, parentheses, one plus two times parentheses, whatever, a bunch of stuff. And then you replaced the plus and the minus and the division with in the best case, you know, ADD for addition, SUB for subtraction, but like, or in the worst case, you know, the actual full word. And I was even just looking at some Python code the other day that um, was basically you can import from an operator's module three character, three letter symbols for the operations, add and sub. And it took me like a good minute to realize that SUB stood for subtraction. Um, and, and so just like there's something so expressive about that little mathematical algebraic expression that like replacing the, the binary, um, you know, operators plus minus with words it, there's there's just some level of obfuscation that I think is introduced there, and that's it's very hard to communicate what it's like if you can read APL. At least for for me, it's hard to communicate like the the power of reading something so um, terse, which is not like not terse in a bad way. Terse is a, a concise way of expressing yeah. you know a lot of information. Anyways, interested to get your thoughts on on sort of that aspect. Yeah, the the notation as a as a tool of thought, if you will. Yeah, and I, and for me, I always go back to if we're programming for computers, then it doesn't really matter on some level. If all we're, our job is is to is to tell a computer what to do, then the like that's a really different ballgame. But we're not really doing that. We're really trying to communicate to people, whether that's to our future selves or whether like the the point of a programming language is to enhance our ability to communicate to ourselves and to other people an idea. Um, and otherwise we'd all just be using assembly at some level, right? It's, it's our ability to, it, the programming languages are a tool for us, not a tool for us to like drive the computer necessarily. It's really a, a, all programming languages, I think have as an ideal, some way of empowering us to be able to think about more complex issues around computation. And when you get to that, then you have to think, well, when it comes to human formal language, when we think about what are the innovations and what are the general trends that you see over the history of humanity in where they're able to leverage their um, minds the best using external linguistic tools. And I think the trend you see is always towards uh, uh, this natural evolution of a very verbose language, which represents a lack of understanding around a concept towards more and more refined terse language until you get eventually some form of expressive notation, which encodes that knowledge in a very direct, immediate way that is more easy for the human mind to manipulate. 
And like this, the, the, the best example is mathematics, but you can, you can find this in a lot of different domains. And these, uh, even if you wanted to, you, you look at things like bullet journaling, right? Uh, as, a, as a human journaling practice that a lot of people take up. Part of the benefits of the bullet journaling system is its notational conveniences around the metadata associated with a given task inside of a, a journal. And the same thing with mathematics is the, the brilliance of algebra is the, the, the Plato-ness of it. It's the manipulatability, that, um, that capacity to rapidly explore an idea and make it easier to think about how you would explore it. So when you look at an algebraic expression, it takes training to see how you manipulate it. But once you can see that, you start to be able to do things in your mind and um, on pen and paper or even on a computer that you wouldn't be able to easily do or easily perceive without that notation. And I think that if we ignore the current very small window of history we have around computer science, you'll see, I think most people will agree that most human linguistic practices tend towards something around that nature, even in scientific communities, right? When we have lots of scientific papers, there's usually a diffusion of terminology, a spread of ideas. They all build up these infrastructures and architectures. And then there's this grand like unification that occurs where the terms get simplified. Everything gets, uh, people start recognizing that these are actually the same thing. And over time that gets refined into a tight, neat ball of concepts and vocabularies and syntax and ways of thinking about it and frameworks. And then it has another diffusion. And um, that, that I think grants some of the strongest evidence in my mind towards uh, a terse direct notation as the, the thing we should be aiming for eventually in a programming language. And I think APL is moving towards that in a, or, you know, it's for me, the, the APL symbols represent that mode of thinking better than the other programming languages. Yes. When you mentioned that in the notation, um, I guess one of the advantages that APL has is your, when you look at mathematical notation, there's a certain amount of it that's evolved. And as a result, you have all these arcane symbols yeah. and used in a variety of different ways. And sometimes when you have disciplines hitting each other, you have a real confusion as to what they actually mean because mm -hmm. the same configuration in one area will make mean something else in a different area. Right. And I, I guessing one of the advantages APL has is it started from a point at which a lot can be expressed consistently across the language. Absolutely. Yeah. I think consistency is really important. Um, but I mean, as a schemer, I would say that, right? The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's something about the regularness too of, of APL that like, it was it was sort of similar to when uh, when I traveled abroad and I learned Chinese. I started to realize some of the ridiculous things about the English language that like I'd never realized until I learned. Like, um, there's a bunch of them, and I'm I'm not going to turn this into a you know why English sucks and Chinese is awesome. <laughs> but like, probably the one of the best examples is like in Chinese um, when you when you say one cat or two cats. Like in English, we have we prepend or whatever, postpend, whatever the word is, an S to the end of the word when you have a plural. But like, as soon as you've said two, you know that there's multiple cats. Why are we modifying the noun? And in Chinese, it's, they don't do it. You just, you've got, you know, your, your object. And then you just say one cat, two cat. You don't, you don't need to have this extra stuff that's unnecessary to communicate. And like, I didn't realize that in a lot of languages, you know, they have plurals of, you know, there's the singular and then the plural Chinese doesn't mess around with that. And like, 
it was the first language I learned. Like I learned French in high school as a, as a kid, cause I'm in Canada. So it's one of the languages you have to learn. And, and I was like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. What are we, what are we doing over here? Like that's, and so the same sort of thing with, with APL is that, you know, when, when I discovered the min and the max glyphs, you know, I was like, well, why, why did we stop in mathematics at like, you know, plus minus multiplication and division? Why did we, why did we give binary infix operators to a set of common binary operations? But why did we stop at, at min and max? And then those are still prefix spelled out. Like, and then you see it in APL and you're like, of course, like, why don't we just, why, why don't we just tell the math people so we can stop? You know, it just, it seems arbitrary that a certain set of, um, you know, binary operations are, are infix. Some of them are prefix. Then you go to exponents and we're doing superscript. So like, it just, it's just like, what are we doing here? And, and in APL, it's, it's way, way, way more regular. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's more regular. Um, the, but like there's there's another aspect of that which i think is what part of the institutional momentum that happens with mathematics is that part of the value of something like this is not just in the regularity because you've got scheme that has regular syntax as well it's in the predictability of the vocabulary um so i think it's it's the it's the value of the shared core so when you're communicating with other people, it helps if you all don't have to define all of your terms in advance. Everybody has a shared context. That, like, so that's what makes, like some of it, to use the Chinese analogy, some of, some of the early Chinese classics are so elegantly phrased, partly because they omit so much data, because they assume that they're working towards a literati that uh, a scholarly class at the time who would have already been expected to have memorized and understood a whole set of literature from which you can then pull. And because everybody knows that literature, the way in which you can write is very different. You can play games, you can play these linguistic games that you can't in other languages that have to be much more verbose in setting the stage. Go ahead, Bob. So is is that, you know, when you when you use a line of APL to to threaten students, um, is is that what's going on there? Is that they, they when they see is that opaque line, yeah. they don't have that background. It's just like, oh, this is or when Connor was talking about uh, looking at the, the source and going, well, do you think it's impenetrable? But then you stare at it for a while and you gradually can see the patterns. Yeah. Is that what's happened with APL when we're talking about trying to teach people APL? They're going, this is impenetrable, but it's because we, we're packing so much on the front end. Is that what's happening? We're showing them so much at the front end, I think. So, so it's the... Well, wow, we're, we're, we're ranging over a lot of topics, but it's human psychology, right? You've got like the, the um, when, when you're looking at a, reaching an outcome, right? Your, your brain has to make a planning assessment to say, how can I get there? And it makes a heuristic judgment of, is this accessible or not? Are there roadblocks in the way? Are these roadblocks too insurmountable? And the more danger and risk it sees in that, the higher your stress response is at the beginning, right? the more fear and resistance and avoidance you encounter uh, if you don't know what or how you would approach a given space. So the more foreign the thing is, the more fear you're going to have around it. And so when you present something like Scheme, it looks scary to it because it's full of all these parentheses. It doesn't quite look at what you think a programming language should look like. But then when you compare it against APL and suddenly you see this one line of crazy alien symbols or whatever it is, you really trigger uh, an early student's sense of like, oh no. But ironically, by doing that, then you step back and now scheme is less scary. 
And so that relative experience changes things. Now, whether that was a really good thing for us to be doing in our labs for the computer science department, that's perhaps up for debate. Like that might not have been the best approach, but it was certainly a fun approach. And it, I think it, it wasn't necessarily so detrimental so to as to ruin the students. Um, but I do think that that happens a lot, right? And this is part of the, I guess the third leg of this triangle is you've got your, you've got your regular syntax that's consistent, you've got your common vocabulary, but you also have experience in using it. And that's like, if people, this is something people often don't quote from Iverson's uh, Turing Award lecture, is that he says, you know, we believe this tool is extremely useful, despite the fact that you need to become a little bit of an expert at working with it. You need to get experience. You have to actually become competent in using it to make, make it valuable. And uh, that's the truth for a lot of powerful tools is you, you do need to learn what you're doing with that system in order to really feel comfortable with it. And in exchange for that sort of upfront learning curve, you get a lot on the tail end, but you have to accept that you might have to embrace slightly different approaches right now. Like touch typing, for instance, that's also a similar skill. So here's, I have a couple questions, but one of them sort of stacks well on top of what Bob just asked. And, and I thought about this earlier that, you know, it's, it's very funny or ironic, you know, choose, choose your word uh, that, you know, at one point you were scaring students as a kind of joke. And then basically due to your curiosity, like, uh, you're a curious person that's just trying to put tools in their tool belt or different blades in their, you know, uh, you know, dojo or whatever. Seeking the hidden knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's basically your curiosity that um, took you to a point where, you know, especially pre-tryapl.org and you had to go download APLX. Um, you're a very curious person. So you overcame sort of the scariness of this language or the alienness or, you know, what we've been describing. Yeah. What... Is like the success of this kind of language um, dependent on people being curious or is there a better story? Because, you know, we, we all here know of the the sort of the pushback that, you know, people see these glyphs and they say, oh, you, two orders of magnitude change the way you think. And notation is a tool of thought. Right. Um, but really, like it was also my curiosity that like I, I had heard about this really cool language on a couple podcasts and finally did a deep dive and was like, Holy smokes. Yeah. Um, but is it, is it, is it just that we're going to collect curious people over time or is there a better story for, you know, encouraging folks that like this, it's worth your time to look into. Um, so I can, I can say yes and no. Um, but I, I, uh, so, so given that I think part of my mission is sort of to change the perspectives and the costs around what it is to experience APL. I think when I started doing the APL, uh, you could, I, I guess in modern terms, it was for the memes, if you would, right? Like I was basically a meme at, at some point, right? And, and when I pr went from, oh, I'm playing around with this, this crazy archaic language to, hey, this has some stuff in it, in my academic circles, it was, you're absolutely like, crazy you're you are you have lost your rocker i i we're gonna hear that you're in the next asylum somewhere um kind of situation at that time like the it was just not even on people's radars and then i i've still got the very embarrassing very poorly presented video on youtube about me 
expressing uh, Intel's concurrent collections semantics model in APL on a whiteboard at an IUPL Wonks talk uh, in the early 2010s, I think. And it was a dumpster fire. Uh, it was an absolute dumpster fire because uh, I went in there and, you know, I, I didn't lack for enthusiasm, but you could tell everybody's face was just like, is this, what are we seeing here? Is this, is this guy for real? What, what is he doing? Does he expect us to like, I mean, ha has he just started having a seizure? Uh, like there was this collective incredulity that was so authentically incredulous, right? It wasn't just like, oh, you use Haskell, you're, you're so edgy kind of thing. No, it was, it was like, this can't be real kind of thing. And, but over time we've progressed from that, right? So it starts with, oh, there's a crazy mountain man out there. And then the crazy mountain man comes and actually builds a monastery. And then suddenly like people go to the monastery and say, hey, this is pretty cool. Um, and then like people start doing things, right? And you, and at that point, and like, so one of my, one of the things that I've tried to do, and I think a lot of um, the, the people who have pushed APL forward, like this array cast and things like that, is that um, we try to make, unpack what it is, ex explicate it a little better, make it a little bit more accessible and make uh, like bring it more into the range of, this is something that's not way off on the mountains, bring it sort of into the towns and the villages, if you will, and make it accessible to people who can start to see the value. And at that point, it suddenly, now if you're curious, now the curious people start to get into something like this and they start playing around with it and they start looking at it. And in a lot of ways, I think we're on the boundary between curious and inherent attraction. So, or inherent value proposition. So I think, I think we still are at a point where unfortunately a lot of the most value for a lot of people is coming from curiosity and the satisfaction of that desire to learn and being curious. And that's part of what draws a lot of people in. And so a lot of people still can't necessarily see or believe like this is something I need to use because I can see that there's value here and I don't care if it's weird or strange or something like that. I, I want it, right? We're not, we're, I don't think we're quite at that point where we can just sort of say we've pretty well established that message. Um, but we are at a point where it's a, a it has respect, uh, I think. Um, it has a, a very strong degree of respect now that it didn't have 10 years ago. And it has the ability to provide something to the curious people and the people who are really early adopters um, in a sense. Um, and then I think as more and more people get into this from the curiosity standpoint, eventually I think what you'll hit is a place where people go, oh, this is something I, I want to know if I wanna get a little extra advantage or something like this. I want to know this. And then that shifts from curiosity to I'm, I'm, I'm picking this to extract value for myself or for my company or to get a competitive edge. And then, you know, ideally the stage from there, you become the de facto standard. And then everybody has to try to find some new competitive advantages because everybody's using it. But I, you know, that's, if ever that's down the road. Um, I think, I think we have to start with the curious people and then move into other places as we refine our ability to express ourselves. Bob? Do you think that's part of the problem it, it traditionally has had in academia is that you're talking about the fact that you sort of, you almost have to become an expert to, to start to appreciate the language. Somebody who's not an expert who is 
um, a professor or has a stature in the community, they may not want to go back to that beginner's mindset to learn what they need to learn to be able to become expert at it. Is that one of the things that holds it back? In academia, I'm going to say no. Um, in industry, absolutely. Absolutely in industry, I think that's, that's the case. Um, but I don't think that's why, uh, at least at IU, um, this was the case. We had a lot of curious people at IU. And we have a really strong PL department in, that uses a lot of languages. And so having this new, cool, crazy, like, I mean, we have a language, um, um, what's his name? He was, shoot, All right, I'll, I'll think of his name, but his, his whole dissertation was on a programming language designed to be entirely reversible so that all computation could go in both directions so that it could be hopefully modeling um, the chips for um, various types of reversible computing architectures that were being designed um, and like quantum stuff, right? So there was no end of people willing to go with really off the wall computational models to play around with. Um, Roshan, Roshan James, that's his name. Uh, so you should look up his dissertation on his reversible computing language. Um, and so the curiosity was there. The problem is where is your focus on value in terms of where do you extract your scholarly publications? Where do you extract, how do you publish? How do you do something new? Where's the novelty? And it's novelty that I think was the hard thing to see in APL because everybody had seen APL as the language that had already been unpacked and explored in the 80s. Uh, and, and the reality is that a lot of computer scientists right now are just rediscovering what was in the 70s and the 80s. Um, it's this cycle uh, because so much knowledge was lost in a sense. Um, and so they're rediscovering all of these ideas and techniques and tools and having to figure out what works and what doesn't work and why. And the APL language to these academics is like, oh yeah, we did that back then. And it was sort of like a closed case, a closed book. They but they didn't get the message at the beginning of what was truly novel about the language. I think that was the, the failure is that the research that had been done at the time didn't really address why the language was worth continuing doing research on, especially after the additional innovations in the computer science theory. Because APL from a semantic standpoint is, is as close to trivial as you can get inside of a computer science um, program for a real practical programming language. It's probably one of the simplest that you can find. What, come, what is really unique about it is what happens when you work with that and you actually apply it and what you see out of it. And if your focus has been on all sorts of semantics and you've been trained that syntax doesn't matter, which is a lot of how people grow up thinking in the, the computer science research communities is that syntax really, it matters, but it's so much a matter of taste that when you're publishing and you care about novelty, you just ignore it. Mm. You, know, you use the standard syntax and you go do your novel semantics work. And I think that, you know, there are small tweaks here and there that people recognize the syntactic innovations, but you don't publish on syntactic innovations. You slip a little syntactic innovation in your paper that people will start using, uh, and then you work on your semantics. And there's not a lot of fruit to be gained by trying to alter APL semantics too much, um, in my opinion. Uh, there, there's certainly some, there, there's definitely some, some fruit there, but not in the way that that computer scientists would need to care about it uh, in academia. So they were basically just missing where is that novelty coming from? 
and 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 it took a lot of work actually uh, with my my committee to convince them that that what was happening here was something that was worthwhile. Yeah, there's there's um a talk that I'll we'll get in the show notes that I watched recently, um, because I think it really captures what you're saying um, nicely, and it was a DevOps talk talking about Java. And they were referencing um, a quote from Rich Hickey, or maybe it was Stu Holloway, mm-hmm. but someone from Closure Land about um, essence versus ceremony mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how a lot of like, and the example that they were showing was uh, how to get started with, you know, Java. And like, it's like, okay, well, just like, let's do a little Hello World program. And it's, you know, classically there's, you know, public static, you know, mm-hmm. argv and all this noise before you even get to like the system.out.print line and yeah. all, all that stuff. And, um, compared to some other language that's, you know, newer, uh, where you can just go print parentheses, you know, hello world. And it just is the barrier to entry is so much lower. And, uh, you know, that, that is what, when, when I was watching that talk, I was just like, Oh my God, yes. Like that's, that's so much of what it is in APL. Um, and just array languages is it's just, there's no ceremony. Like it's, it's just, you want to add up a list of numbers, you know, plus reduce, you're done. Like it's, it's, um, the, the closest to just like pure essence um, with zero ceremony whatsoever that I've come across um, with different programming languages, that is. I, I would say it's the, it's the closest you can get to a true, the closest I've seen to a true general purpose removal of ceremony. So there are lots of languages that do a really good job of removing ceremony um, in one very narrow niche and one very specific domain with a specific set of vocabularies around a specific problem. Um, but if, but in terms of having a single language that removes the need for ceremony across so many domains with the same set of tools, the same vocabulary, the same syntax, the same architectures, I don't think APL uh, is has been beat in that department. Do you have an example off the top of your head? What's like a, a narrow one with a um, that's not general purpose? Um, SQL is pretty good. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. SQL is one of the classics um, in terms of the classic success stories of a language that removes massive amounts of ceremony around a particular programming paradigm that people want to interact with. Um, and it's been very successful and it, and it achieves what it's trying to do very well, uh, especially if you can stick your problem into pure SQL. But of course, what happens is what happens when your problem doesn't really quite match your RDMS relational model that you need, and suddenly now you're having to inject direct functions into your PostgreSQL database, or you need to start thinking about the ordering and indexing operations that are going on, and you start adding extra things that you have to now expand on the language and, and do things. Um, so it's a very narrow, limited focus, which is why the DSL works so well. Um, it just so happens that APL found this like DSL that that is way more universal than people I think originally gave it credit for. Yeah, no, there's, well, this is great. I was just about to mention that. So at the end of one of your, I think it's a, a ICFP talks, you, or maybe even it was like basically the whole ICFP talk, you did sort of just like a live, like throw me a problem and we'll solve it because oh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's one of the criticisms is that, you know, people think of APL, they think of math and they just, oh, it's just matrix operations. 
Yeah. Um, the point being is that like, no, you can do it's it. Yes, it does very well at matrix <laughs> kinds of things. Uh, that is what it was designed for, but it's also very general purpose. And so, uh, you know, b- a bunch of people sort of from the crowd, you, you weren't like you, you didn't, you weren't given a list of these problems beforehand. And then you cherry picked a few, right. literally just people from the crowd would throw out some problem and then you'd live code it like right there. Um, so that's, we'll, yeah, we'll put an, yeah. uh, a link to that as well. That was in functional conf, I think a couple of years ago. You, you referred to a talk yeah. earlier, so we should we should mention uh, you're a prolific speaker in that you've got, I don't know how many, at least on your APL wiki page, I think there's roughly 20 plus talks uh, across different conferences. Um, I'm not sure if you've, you've got even more, but are there, because you were talking even earlier about sort of something that sounded similar to sort of the uh, idioms versus libraries, yeah. and you've got a talk that talks about sort of there's a list of, I think, eight things that you're classically sort of taught in sort of, you know, the C++ Java land. And you have to change the way you think about sort of reaching for for libraries or modules when, when you have APL. So uh, I'm not sure if you want to talk a little bit, a bit about that, but even before you do that, like of all the talks, you know, we don't want to overwhelm our listener and say, yeah, well, I just go listen to all 30 of them. Uh, do you have like a, you know, couple favorite that you would, you would plug if, if you, and I guess it's, they, a lot of them talk about different things. So I'm not sure if, if it's like, you know, if you're looking for just an intro, this is the best talk, or if you're looking for what I think personally is my favorite talk. Um, Ooh, um, hmm. uh, I, I don't, I think it's not helpful to point out my favorites because I'm weird and the things that I like <laughs> don't necessarily correlate. Like I've had to accept that I'm a weirdo and a contrarian and things like that. That's how I make my, my living, I guess. Um, so I guess the ones that appear to be the things that people say are, are the most interesting or helpful or most thought provoking. I think the ones I've got the feedback on um, would be, uh, you can go ahead and read the dissertation. That's one of the, if you want uh, the sort of single document that lays out a cohesive step-by-step argument in a non-traditional APL domain for APL, you can read the dissertation. Um, uh, that's um, a, a GPU hosted compiler for the data parallel language or a data parallel com, uh, compiler for a GPU language or something like this. I, I can't even remember my own. There we go. Okay, hang on. Uh, a data parallel compiler hosted on the GPU. There you go. Oh, that's a that's a whole book there. <laughs> and uh, the 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 other talk was um, does APL need a type system? And the um, design anti patterns and patterns uh, design patterns for APL. Um, I think there are two versions of that talk. Uh, one is the dialogue talk, and in that talk, I added some d- discussion of APL style. So I spent some more time thinking, talking about the different styles and ways in which people write APL code at the end. That's available both as a Sway presentation and uh, as a dialogue video. And then at Functional Conf, I gave a, a different version of that talk where I emphasized more of the usability questions. Um, so I included more research citations from early research into programming language uh, usability um, papers that um, I think Mosley and, uh, well, no, Mosley is the Turing Tar Pit paper, but some of these other guys that do, um, did some early research. And a lot of that came out of the eighties because people I think reached a point where they didn't have the technology to do the research much further in it. And and it wasn't get, uh, getting the results they wanted. Um, but yeah, so, so those two talks I think 
one or the other, depending on which one you're more interested in. I think would, they overlap mostly in what they say. So one or the other would be fine. And those three tend to be the ones that I hear people uh, discussing the most, uh, more or less. Okay. Yeah, that's good. We'll put, we'll put links to all of them, but yeah, and I can highly recommend I've, um, I can't remember at what point I discovered your talks and code defunds when I was falling down the APL rabbit hole. Uh, but it was very cool because a lot of the resources are they're at specifically at some dialogue webinar yeah. or conference. Uh, but then at some point I stumbled across, I was like, oh, look, there is actually <laughs> someone at a non APL specific conference talking about APL. This is, this is awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of the times your talk style, it's, it's trying to get people interested sort of from different angles. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, I, I thought that the idea of, you know, just throw me a problem. And like, I have the confidence that I can, I can solve whatever problem, like it text parsing, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, let's just like, you don't, you don't, you think APL is for this, but like, that's such a, I had never seen anyone, like I've seen live coded talks before, which are always very impressive. I've never seen a live coded, but like, I don't know what I'm going to live code. You just tell me like, that is, uh, that is very, very ambitious. And I just thought it was such a great, like, um, regardless of the language, uh, I think that that's such a, such well, a cool idea. I mean, so, um, so to be fair here, uh, maybe a magician should never reveal his secrets. Um, but oh, here we go. It was all well, staged. No, no, no. So, so <laughs> like, I, I, one of the metaphors I use when I talk about my uh, my work is that maybe I'm supposed to be like a wandering apostle of APL, right? And if you think about what an apostle does, they provide a bunch of principles and a bunch of things. They get people to think about what they're doing and how they're doing it. But you also have to sort of perform miracles right that's part of being the apostles you're supposed to kind of perform miracles or, or you know the other uh analogy is the magician right you, you're if when you've got something that people don't understand you have to find ways of unpacking it and one of the ways you can do that is very academic but it doesn't explain where why you care to learn this thing but if you start with the beauty of whatever you're doing and you start with this beautiful thing that people can admire I think you're you're better off. And so, you know, that's always been my perspective is I want people to appreciate the experience that they can have um, and what you can gain from working with this. And so that that idea of the live coding and things like that has always been a part of allowing people to see underneath the curtains a little bit because they get to see how I'm approaching a problem and and I and my thought process that goes on behind it. So I think it's educational, but also it's fun, right? It's just fun to play around with this stuff and they get to see things that they might not have already seen. It's a good way to target stuff, but it's, I have been doing programming enough and I've done enough different problems that I have a lot of confidence in my ability to think about programming problems. And so part of it is that I'm, I kind of know my audience. And so I know that my audience is going to give me a certain class of type of problem, right? It's just like, it's going to happen. And so within that space, I'm relatively confident within those domains that I know people are going to give me. So I, it's not absolutely any problem anywhere that I have to deal it's with. It's more like a cold reading. It's, it's much more, yeah, like a cold reading or, um, you know, you're, you're in essence, the, the range of problems that I'm solving, uh, it could go really wild, but there's a there's a curve around where I'm likely to get those problems. So the, the the risk there is relatively low. And even if I did get a wild, wild problem, that would be really fun because 
you know, the end result is really about showing how you can play around with these things, not necessarily proving that, uh, you know, not necessarily me coming up with an optimal solution right away. Um, and, and so showing how APL allows me to think and work, I've actually found has been more um, elucid, elucid, um, illuminating to people than just showing these perfectly crafted APL solutions. And so mm -hmm. when people sit down with me and see me working with on my compiler, for instance, they go, if they were, have worked on a compiler in some other domain, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. How can you do all of this stuff just here? Because I have so much facility to just play with any aspect of my compiler at any moment. And I can just explore and I can walk around data in ways that I can't in other languages. And I can try so many different things. Uh, when we talk about the like agile and the value of incremental iteration, the scheme in the REPL, like one of the grand things that people discovered is the value of the REPL in these languages because it lets you keep trying things. And, and then one of the things you know that they discover is they think they got a, this huge advantage in the REPL and that's really true. But then when they go into like an APL session, this is a, like a REPL on steroids where <laughs> because the language allows me to just play so quickly and type so quickly, it's the difference between somebody who's hunt and pecking on their keyboard and somebody who knows how to touch type. The, the difference is night and day because now I can just start experimenting and iterating on that REPL so much faster and, and see things in ways that are like, so my, the, the, when I'm looking at trees in code funds, I can break those trees down into so many different directions, dimensions, things. I can see links. I can ask like SQL type queries over my tree. I can visualize the tree, you know, upwards, downwards, sideways. I can go into the tree. I can subdivide it and I can do it all in like one line of code each time. And I can just play with that stuff. And to do that, you just, you just have to say, no, I can't do that. I have to solve or debug my code or figure something else out to write my code in another language. I can't play that way as easily in another language. And being able to live code, I think, at a presentation is a part of showing that and demonstrating that because you, you can't manufacture that experience very easily. You have to do it live, I think. You have to do it when you're specifically unprepared. Yeah, the word the word play, uh, we'll throw it to you, Stephen, in a sec, is, is I feel like it comes up again and again. Like I've described being in the REPL is feeling like you're in like the APL, you know, ride or, um, IDE that comes with dialogue APL. It's, it's like being in a playground. It's like the ability, like in my head initially when I'm solving some problem, I'll think, Oh yeah, I could go four different directions. I could go for like a filtering compress approach. I could go for this, this. And I know that like in the next 10 or 15 minutes, I can explore those all super quickly. Whereas like, if I'm going to, that just doesn't happen in C plus plus like my day to day language, like the, the, in, the includes and the main and the function and oh and now i gotta go figure out why this compilation thing um yeah it's just completely different but yeah Stephen, we'll throw it to you all right i think i think it was paul graham who said that a programming language is should be like a pencil it's for writing and thinking in um uh, you published a blog post a few years ago on in which you were using a calligraphy pen if i remember correctly and a, a and wrote your code in what I think you told me was Spencerian roundhand. Yes. I wonder if you could relate that to what you're saying about the process of thinking and creativity. Well, I mean, I, I, so when it comes to connecting penmanship to 
to coding, right, is I've always felt like pen and paper is powerful, right? And I think a lot of people in my generation have rediscovered the power of pen and paper. Um, I, would, I would say as a sort of pseudo Luddite in some sense, I, I never lost it. Um, but but the, the, there's, there's an aspect of joy, like it goes, this happiness, but there's also this, there's a deep-seated joy of working with your tools. And um, there's, a, there's, I think, cultivating an environment in which you're, you like what you're doing, you like what you're working with, and you can sense the beauty in it. I think that's a bit of an inspiring thing. And sometimes when you're working on things, you just, you just need a little bit of that inspiration. You need a, that space. And, and when I, calligraphy, a lot of people will describe calligraphy as like sort of meditative. And so oftentimes I'll use a good, like, you know, I've got my, I've got my little Spencerian flex nib pen that I'll use, or, you know, um, I've got, lately I've been working on a, a type of italic. So I've got this italic nib, you know, I've got these different tools that let me experience a different type of handwriting. And when I work on that and I pick just the right kind of paper that has just the kind of feedback, you create a sensory experience for yourself that sort of helps get you in the, in the zone. Right. And so I'm, when I'm sitting there writing and doing these things, it, and just sketching out this code, it lets me put, it gets me into this free headspace. It's almost like you can do a type of Zen meditation, if you will, while you're coding. And so it's a way of bring, it's a focus aid to bring your mind into this settled space while you're thinking about the code. And that I think frees up a lot of options, it lets you just sort of feel comfortable with the code. You, I think you, you, you memorize more of the code that you're doing. And I actually, um, this is something I haven't talked about a lot, but um, in any formal talk yet, I haven't been able to formalize it fully. But in my opinion, we pay way too much attention on externalized knowledge and not enough attention on the value of really, really deep knowledge. And the where and you can see this, for example, in some articles that people talk about the ineffectiveness of group brainstorming, like people think group group collaboration and brainstorming is the key to lots of innovation. But if you actually do the research and look at what these big companies did, like Google, I think, did a research on this and some other places, they found that in a lot of cases, this wasn't the case, that it helped occasionally for certain things. But a lot of times, the big innovations, the, the things that delivered the most value came from an, one individual sitting down and playing with an idea and then getting feedback uh, from other people and then playing with that idea. And I think the part or reason for that was that the power of the individual comes in this really hyper-efficient uh, problem-solving space, which is your internal mind. And the moment you have to externalize that thinking, you increase the communication overheads for processing and solving problems exponentially. And if instead you can internalize all of that deep knowledge into your brain in a way that it can work on solving the problems and making connections as you work with it, you, you've got this the space that is really rich, and I think people have underestimated the value of the individual um, within the programming sphere, uh, partly because of some of the um, Engelbart uh, effect uh, from, from Douglas Engelbart and his, his theories about um, this group cognition type stuff in computing. And, and I think that uh, one of the aspects of writing on a pen and paper is the way it helps you internalize knowledge and that internalized knowledge is the thing that allows you to then solve problems in ways that you wouldn't if you were just Googling and trying to find the right library and just 
working off of external feedback instead of your internal mind working over it. Is aesthetics a big component in all this? Aesthetic? Oh yeah. That's, that's, that goes back to the beauty thing, right? Is, you know, when you're creating something that's beautiful, it's a totally different thing than when you feel like you're creating something ugly. I feel like this is a this is a conversation which we're sort of like not supposed to have programmers <laughs> talking about beauty and so on, except we've we've found a way around it by pronouncing it cool. <laughs> so in programmer in, in conversations with with devs, you so often hear it's go, oh that's cool, that's really you should look at this, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're paying tribute to it, but we can't call it beauty or aesthetics, and it's. And I feel that while we use the term cool all over the place, we don't acknowledge the importance of it in finding out really good algorithms and beautiful ways of doing things. Well, so, okay, okay. You've, you've, hit, you've hit a point at which um, if any re- listeners are highly sensitive, please uh, tune out now <laughs> uh, because I'm going to get into something that extends beyond the world of computing, which is that I think our society in general, in a lot of ways, has worked very, very hard to undermine the concept of beauty um, in a lot of ways. And so they've instead exchanged beauty for a variety of experience or something else. Um, and, and I think that that has a detriment on our ability to have ways of gaining deep and rich intuitive understandings of our world and our spaces. And so, for instance, art, one of the things that art can do is leverage beauty to bring out contrast and reveal some deep-seated human truth that people have a hard time seeing. And I think beauty can do that in ways that other approaches just can't, they fail, because there are some things that we don't understand yet. And even in our like very logical, very crisp computing world, there's so much we don't understand about ideas. And there's so much about the spaces in which we work that we don't understand how ideas are connected or anything. But when we apply beauty to that, we can set ourselves up for more serendipitous discovery than if we strip the beauty from a lot of what we do. So I, I actually think that beauty has a fundamental value proposition in delivering usefulness um, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, as well as uh, from a psychological, emotional standpoint of making your programmers better uh, and and more ready to solve more difficult problems. But, you know, so I, I think it's absolutely essential, but I think we are so used to disregarding beauty as a value. And when we do talk about things being beautiful, we've, we've taken to calling so many things beautiful. We've used the wrong word for it, right? because we've associated that nothing is worth anything if it's not utterly beautiful. Well, that's not really quite true, right? Beauty is, a, is an ideal that we look to as a guy that helps provide an anchor and a star, but, but that doesn't mean we now have to call everything beautiful so that we all feel worth something or something like this. And I think we've, we've, we've diluted the definition of beauty a lot in, in, in general use, as well as dismissing it in specialist use or very specific uses. And, and that the combination of those two things, I think, um, undermines our ability to leverage beauty um, intuitively, because I think we're trained against it from in, in a lot of our social environments and societies, and, and especially within the computing world, if you're in a professional environment. I think there's, there's still a little bit of that in the hobbyist environments and things like that, where, where you, you know, you can still say, oh, this is beautiful. And if you go in a very math, like the mathematicians still, I think, are willing to leverage beauty in some sense, because they're, 
their success depends on it in, in a sense, right? The elegance is almost the definition of the mathematician's space. Um, and when you've got the computer scientists in academia that are fairly adjacent to mathematics in terms of what they're doing, I think a lot of that crosses over and they start to be able to have this deep-seated aesthetic appreciation for elegance in its in the sense of beauty and, and that sort of thing. As a piece of dialogue from Stephen Donaldson's 1981 fantasy, the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant that always nails that for me, um, central character Covenant's got projected into yeah. some other, other world where he's wandering around. And in, in conversation with a, with a character there called Morham, he remarks that in this other world, he has a direct apprehension of the health, the vitality, the beauty of the environment. You can see it directly. You can see when the landscape of an ecology is healthy. And he wonders at that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Morham turns to him and says, so um, you don't have that in your world? What do you have? A covenant says, well, we have something called, we call picturesque. Yeah, yeah. Morham turns directly to him, his face ashen, his expression horrified, and he says, how do you live? <laughs> I, 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 I do think there's an aspect of that, right? I think a lot of people cut into their creativity partly because they, they undermine that aspect of their life or, or they're living in an environment that pushes against that for them. And, you know, I don't know that I have a solution for that, uh, but I think in terms of how I choose to approach programming, aesthetics has a huge, huge place to play. Yeah, I maybe I should make a compilation of a couple of clips from um, my podcast with Bryce. We can link them. They're honestly not the best podcast. We did a live coding in BQN, which is like the the next gen APL by Marshall Lockbaum. And it's terrible because, like, I'm not even doing a good job explaining what we're doing. Like, I'm just coding. And then Bryce is like, what's that? What's that? <laughs> and, like, I'm, we're not describing anything. Um, but, like, at a couple different points, um, I just am like, holy smokes, does this does that work? And then I'm just like, oh, my goodness, this is so beautiful. And even Bryce is like, that is quite beautiful. Like, so there's these clips of, like, playing around. And it's it's so true. Like, I was coding a Python script the other day. And I needed to just print out the lengths of two different lists. And so you're applying a unary operation length to each list and then printing it out. And like in, in uh, array language with combinators, that's just the side combinator. You're, you're catenating after applying tally to each one. And like going from like this sort of beautiful, what I think is beautiful, and then going to a language that doesn't support that, where now I have to, I have to spell with six different parentheses and, you know, len, paren, insert list, you know, print, and then another print. Like, it's, it's very hard. Uh, like, so what, Stephen, you're explaining, you know, in, in this direct connection to, to the vitality of the land, it's, in, it's like, oh, it's so wonderful. And then you come back to another language, and it's like, oh, well, I can't, exp- I can't express myself the way I want to express myself in, in that beautiful world. Uh, is yeah, it just ve- rings very true to me that um, yeah, it's, it's not the end of the world, but just like constantly while I'm programming in other languages, as I'm like, well, this is in my head, I'm expressing it the beautiful way, but then I, I, I type out the less <laughs> the less beautiful thing and just go, oh, well, I guess there's no other way to do this yeah. here. Um, I think I think joy has a big component of it, right? Is I like for me, programming has always been intimately connected with a sense of joy in what I'm doing, um, regardless of what I'm programming. And I've met a lot of people for which that's not the case. And it goes back to that whole picturesque. I, I, I sometimes have asked them, how do you live, right? <laughs> this, 
how 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 can you embrace the pain that comes with programming because it is a difficult art to do how do you take that and then without the joy that comes with it how do you endure and obviously they have their own reasons for doing it but um, there have been times when I have advised certain students in our CS program to really, really have a bit of a think and a reflection over their reasons for being at the program because they were miserable trying to do this coding stuff. Um, and they, they were there because they thought that's what they needed to do to get the money. And that, that's just a recipe for a life of misery. And so, you know, I, I think that, that that's no way to get into computer science. Yeah, my father always used to say, although it's, you know, it's a famous quote, but, you know, find something you love and you never have to work a day in your life. And, um, yeah, I'm just lucky that what I loved happens to be in a very booming industry right now. Um, although APL, not, I wouldn't call that booming, but <laughs> some would say that my... Uh, on the, on an, a gentle upward trend. Yeah, my bang for my buck on my, uh, my YouTube videos. It's like I, every once in a while I'll make something that's more clickbaity and what people want and it's like, oh, 100,000 views. And then all my APL videos are like, you know, 500, 1,000. But it's, you know, that's where my, that's what makes me happy. It's not about what my subscribers want. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we are, so we've gone past a little bit the hour mark. Um, there's a couple last things I'll, I'll say to round up the episode, but before we do that, are there any last sort of short questions or things we want to mention uh, before we, before we uh, wrap things up? I'm seeing sort of head shakes. All right, so the things that I'll mention um, that we haven't gotten to, so you, we'll, if you have the time, Aaron, we'll definitely have you back at some point in the future. Uh, I feel, you know, like what I said to Henry Rich is uh, we had a thousand questions and we got to like four of them. So we got 996 <laughs> to go. Um, at, at one point uh, you mentioned trees and I actually had totally forgotten this, but um, a, a friend of mine, Joao, had asked uh, us at ArrayCast to do an episode on sort of graphs in the Array paradigm. Um, mm -hmm. And I said, oh, we're actually having Aaron on. Uh, probably we won't have a ton of time to talk about it, but maybe on a future episode we could dedicate, if, if not the whole episode or at least a part of it, because I know that um, you've done a ton of work with uh, sort of trees and, and graphs, yeah. and uh, that like it seems like something that doesn't fit well with sort of an array or matrix model. Um, but when you take a second yeah. look, it's actually it works fantastically. And I think even you told me that, um, or I had heard in one of your talks that in originally. Um, a programming language, or maybe it was the second one, automated data processing. Uh, Ken Iverson actually dedicates like a huge portion of that book to talking about graph algorithms or tree algorithms. And at, at one point, even some of the Unicode symbols or glyphs, I guess they weren't Unicode symbols at the time, the glyphs um, were specifically had like, you know, uh, behavior that dealt with uh, graph or tree algorithms or something. Um, I'm not sure if you want to briefly want to yeah, that's the original APL book. Yeah, the original APL book has a section on trees and um, has some discussion on ways of thinking about them. Um, but yeah, the the, the tree work, I, we should definitely get, uh, talk about that at some point, but it's, uh, it is the one thing that, that the academic community who was willing to recognize in a publication <laughs> as worth, as worth novelty consideration. So, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of, uh, it, it's sort of, I guess you could say my, my contribution to the academic space at the moment is, is my work with trees. Yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely have to, um, have you back on and, and we could also do a whole episode too. We didn't really talk about code defunds much in detail, but maybe we'll do a deep dive on yeah. uh, folks that want to hear about that. And, uh, last but not least, um, we currently, I'm not sure if we ever will, uh, have a merch shop, uh, for a Raycast. 
But instead of a Raycast, uh, well, instead, or what? while we don't have a merch shop, uh, Aaron, actually, and I was, I was reminded of this when I went to your website recently, <laughs> you do have a merch shop that is uh, APL relevant. So I'm not sure if you want to plug uh, or mm-hmm. talk about, you've got, I think, two or three different sort of um, t-shirts, and I'm not sure if that you can order other things other than t-shirts, uh, but I'm sure some of our listeners. Uh, Mostly just t-shirts at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I like... Um... If you go to sacrodeo.us, there's a link to the shop. But the uh, the people kept joking about my research, saying, "Oh, it'll fit on a T-shirt," and I was like, "Yes, it will." And so I I made one, and so I I, I made sure to you know go around and uh, there the the T-shirts have actually made some public appearances and some things. I think uh, one guy wore it to what looked like something like a EDM rave kind of thing or something that he was DJing for some kind of uh, electronic music thing that he had up there. And so there's this, the symbols on there. I thought the aesthetic was quite good. Um, and then I'm just like, I, there's some little, I like riffing on the idea of people like to put phrases on their shirts and, and make things. So I, I just translate the phrases into APL and make them little idioms. And, and it turns out that they, the translations work pretty well. So uh, I've got one or two there. And then I have um, my, when you want to make a true religious statement and wear your, uh, I guess, your your cross or your pentagram right on your chest, uh, then there's the quad IO get zero <laughs> shirt. That's right, that, yeah. You know, makes make sure, make sure everybody knows where you stand on that. I, I maybe should also include like a quad ML gets one or quad ML gets two kind of thing. Well, what's what's quad ML? Migration level. It's the um, it's the way that you can convert dialogue to run in either the traditional dialogue APL sharp uh, symbol set or the APL two symbol interpretation, which switches a couple of symbols around. So it's like it's a flavor and uh, on either side of the a- APL two versus uh, sharp APL sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so exactly. listener, if you're if you've been thinking to yourself. Um, <laughs> what am I been doing with my life? Not wearing, uh, APL symbols on my t-shirt. Uh, we now have, uh, we now have you hooked up, not with a merch shop that we've put together, but with one of our guests has, so, <laughs> um, Bob, any, any last things you want to say? Oh, just the usual, uh, get in touch with this, uh, contact at arraycast. Um, dot com and uh, we're love to hear from people in fact well we've wanted to have Aaron on for an awful long time but uh, there have certainly been a few suggestions that we bring Aaron on through that and uh, and now those people can be satisfied that we did listen and, and we were able to do it and uh, and so everybody's benefited from that um, and then also show notes have been mentioned a lot we really do work to put the show notes um, because a lot of what we're talking about can be so uh, deep and um, I guess require a little bit of background, um, the show notes really help you. Um, if you go in and you're not understanding something, go into the show notes because a lot of the background information is there. But as we were talking about a number of times, up front, this can be quite uh, daunting. And uh, if you do a little bit of background, actually, none of this is that difficult, but it initially appears quite impenetrable at times but look at the show notes see if they help you if they don't if you already know this hey just have fun that's uh, that's my message have fun 
Yeah, definitely have fun. Everyone that was asking for Aaron can now, instead of stop emailing, they can start emailing, have Aaron back. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, th- thanks so much for, for taking your time to, to come on to Raycast with us, Aaron. It's been a blast. And I always love chatting with you, whether it's uh, at you know some conference in Gathertown or um, on some Zoom call for, uh, I think it was you know the New York uh, J user group one time. Um, yeah. It's always always a blast chatting and, and um well that's that's the it's telltale sign that we gotta wrap things up. Uh at the door. All, All right. right. <laughs> it's the pizza it's the pizza well, you ordered, Rich. Uh, <laughs> well it's it's been a ton of fun being on here and I think I think this is it's I, I'd be happy to come back. It's it's always it's always a blast. So awesome. All right. With that then we will say happy array programming. Happy array programming. programming.